Hello, I'm Chris Turin, National Executive Vice President for Organic Growth for One Digital. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing the healthcare crises and some of the drivers of the healthcare crisis today. I'm joined by Keith Lemmer, CEO of WellNet Healthcare. For 25 years, Keith has been on the front lines of rethinking how businesses can manage their health insurance costs and what most of us would consider to be a broken system. He lobbies extensively on Capitol Hill for reform, and he holds a patent for WellNet's innovative healthcare management system. Keith and his team build and optimize smarter self-funded health plans for companies across the country. I'm also thrilled to welcome Jeff Post, a registered pharmacist and chief clinical officer for One Digital's Pharmacy Consulting Solution. He leads clinical risk management and client education to improve both outcomes and significantly reduce costs. He consults with the National Business Group on Health, working with Fortune 100 companies in an effort to fix the broken pharmacy benefits system. And he oversees the clinical risk management for one of the nation's largest group purchasing organizations. Welcome, Keith, and welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to join you. So as I mentioned, we're going to be discussing the healthcare crisis, and I think it's important to understand how pervasive the healthcare crisis is. It's important to understand the impacts to our economy, and it's important to understand what's driving the healthcare crisis. So first, for context, if we look at the last 50 years, healthcare costs have expanded from 5.9% to 18% of gross domestic product while total employee compensation has actually shrunk from 51% to 46% of GDP. Worse yet, the bottom 60% of workers have had almost all of their wage gains wiped out from these increasing expenses, as well as increasing deductibles and coinsurance. And the impact employers is to impede their ability to, to compete internationally, uh, their ability to invest in their people as they desire and to drive a profits. We've identified six primary drivers of the healthcare crisis, but today we're going to focus on three primary drivers, the lack of transparency, appropriateness of care, or maybe inappropriateness of care, uh, and data. But before we get started, Keith, I'd like to ask you if you could please unpack for us the Affordable Care Act's medical loss ratio rule and how it impacts healthcare costs and the crisis because it really uh, ties to so many of the other perverse uh, incentives that exist today. Absolutely. So, uh, Chris, if you think about what's going on today and the cost and the increases and the challenges companies and their people have, it really goes back to 2010 when the Affordable Care Act actually passed the medical loss ratio. There's a complete misalignment of incentives or shall we say kind of perverse incentives. And what the what the law did and what it said is that uh, insurance companies, they can only keep 15 percent for a small group or excuse me, 15 percent for a large group, 20 percent for a small group of every dollar collected for profit. And that ultimately means that in order for them to make money or more money every year for shareholders or even if they're a quasi public company like a blue, at the end of the day, they have to allow claims costs to go up. 
So there is no incentive for them, Chris, to actually lower the cost of the claim, lower the number of claims, and actually have people find higher quality, lower cost physicians for surgeons and regular procedures because they'll make less money. So while they pretend, we believe, um, they actually share you know, with companies that they're going to lower the healthcare costs, they typically and traditionally never do. And that's a real challenge. Yeah, I would agree. And it's it's such a, I mean, basic and simple uh, concept, but uh, so few I really recognize uh, how it's impacting healthcare and driving up uh, costs. And, and Jeff, I, I assume that you see the impact of ACA's MLR rule on drug costs as well as it impacts how drugs uh, are purchased. Is, do you see any, uh, any impacts there as well? Well, it's, again, the reverse incentive, very similar on the pharmacy benefit landscape. The higher costs go, the more money everybody makes that's that's supporting those particular systems. So as drug costs rise and as rebates rise and as the system gets to less affordability, it becomes more profitable. And so this whole concept of fiduciary is almost like an opposite, right? Their best gains are not when they control expenses. They gain the most when our plan sponsors have the most pain. So it is definitely a broken model. Well, thank you, gentlemen, uh, for uh, really helping us unpack uh, that particular perverse uh, incentive uh, and the impact um, to all of us, really employers uh, and employees. Let's uh, start with uh, price transparency. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the thing that bothers me the most about the lack of transparency is that at the end of the day, this is healthcare. And what could be more important than to be transparent in healthcare? From an economic perspective, 18% of our economy uh, is transacted without any price transparency. That's, that's how much uh, the uh, healthcare system uh, costs uh, in context of our total economy. And transparency is really the cornerstone of free markets. I think we would all agree uh, with that. And it is a very complex issue. Uh, and of course, has, I think, um, some unintended consequences for, you know, by penalizing first uh, compliers. But at the end of the day, transparency is critical uh, to solving uh, the healthcare crisis. Um, Jeff, I, I would really like to understand from your perspective how lack of transparency manifests in uh, prescription drugs, pres prescription benefit management, uh, and how employers are both paying for drugs uh, and how they're managing uh, their uh, prescription uh, drug programs. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a very challenging word, transparency. It's been an awesome buzzword in the pharmacy benefits world for probably two decades now, but it's been one that's been, been very difficult to unpack. If you really look at where the concentration of where most of the prescriptions are being managed in the U.S., it's consolidated to just a handful of pharmacy benefit managers. And in most cases, those are under what's considered a traditional model, not a transparent model. Traditional meaning they make money on basically marking up the medications from what they're paying the retail pharmacies to what they're paying or charging the plan sponsors. And then rebates, it's you, we could have an entire session, unfortunately, on rebates, but it's been a terrible pain point. Uh, speaking to the National Business Group on Health, the one thing all large employers say is rebates going away would 
basically helped the pharmacy industry tremendously. The challenge is, is now all of these costs and all of the systems are built around these oversized price points to afford these very, very large rebates coming in the back door. And the market would have to adjust significantly. We call that the haircut, right? The system would have to take a huge haircut to get back to the non-rebate driven model. And nobody's figured out a way to go to that haircut model. So it's definitely an issue. I don't see it ending anytime soon. And it's definitely a major challenge in the pharmacy benefit landscape. Yeah, that lack of transparency, it's a bit maddening. And according to the Department of Health and Human Services, rebates are passed along to PBMs and health insurance companies to essentially drive higher sales volumes. And Milliman says that this is most prevalent with even the highest cost uh, drugs. So can you tell us, Jeff, how is it that rebates don't actually implicate federal anti-kickback laws? And how does that impact the expense to employers today? Yeah, well, fortunately for the system, it does get around the anti-kickback. So we know it is there. And I think the word rebate is a, a part of the system now. And everybody knows it's not illegal for a pharmaceutical company to pay a pharmacy benefit manager a rebate for both placement and utilization on their formulary. So the rules allow for it. I, I think the biggest challenge is, is what happens to that rebate and are they truly lowering our net cost of prescriptions and helping our employers? And if we kind of unpack it into fully insured versus self-insured, in a fully insured market, that 20, 25% that's coming in in rebates sits there on your gross cost is typically in no way a part of the financials. And so these employers are simply just paying the higher price, the rebates are coming in, and the credit or the reduction of those rebates, the value is not actually being boiled down to the plan sponsor level. Self-insured, it's the dogfight method, right? How much of that rebate is coming in the back door? How much of that's coming back to me, the plan sponsor? And it's a constant friction point with the benefit manager of trying to get all of those rebate dollars back. And then I have to pump the brakes and hit the pause button and say, the bigger that number gets, that's actually probably problematic, right? Because that's also increasing or inflating the cost of drugs at times chasing these gimmick and rebate driven drugs. So again, it's definitely a challenge on both sides and it's not an easy fix. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And it's it's just shocking. Uh, honestly, there, there's even the safe harbor to allow rebates to be paid, but that's the way our system uh, works today. And uh, so we have to live within the confines. We'll circle back on this with you, Jeff, but I'd really like to hear, Keith, uh, from uh, the healthcare uh, perspective um, and your perspective, um, how transparency or lack thereof uh, adversely impacts employers' ability to control costs. It's interesting, right? You know, everybody says, you know, the healthcare system is broken, right? It's not working, right? That's really just the opposite. The healthcare system is working just fine. It's working fine for the people that created it and working fine for those that want to protect the revenue streams, the health systems, the health insurance companies, and others that are surrounding the benefit plan. And so they want to protect those revenue streams and, and protect the data as much as possible. This past year, Wellnet did a, a study, and the study was to all of the advisors around the nation. And we asked them, you know, do you 
think the what do you think the likelihood is that the insurance companies are actually there in the best interest of your customers in terms of actually saving money and being transparent? And 90% of them, 90% of them thought that they did not have, the insurance companies did not have the best interest of the customer in mind. And then last point, I'll use an example of one of our customers here in the mid-Atlantic region. They're an auto dealer, about 300 employees. They were fully insured for a number of years. And the challenge was, right, they stayed fully insured because of the fear, the unknown. Once the CEO and once the CFO and their advisor began to dig in, they decided to self-insure. And what they were able to do with just one particular claim, one of their members needed some back surgery. And the employee was going to go to Georgetown University hospital for this back surgery for a particular surgeon. They called us, right, because they wanted some advocacy, some guidance, and they ultimately, right, they wanted to save some money. We were able to find out that that surgeon had the same privilege at a hospital three miles down the road that ultimately allowed the company to save $150,000 from what was a $170,000 claim. None of that, because of the lack of transparency, would have existed in a fully insured or self funded based carrier model. And that's a problem. Yeah, that that's a really uh, big problem. I think that uh, there are multiple studies um, out there that uh, uh, demonstrate that pricing uh, differs you know, by tenfold with different providers, but it's really, really difficult for uh, employers to access that uh, um, data because of the lack of uh, transparency. So um, that's interesting, um, Keith. And I, I, I wonder, um, you know, you're you're talking about an employer that was fully insured and went to a self-funded, and and that level of additional control that they, um, you know, were able to uh, exert in order to control costs. Um, how about employers that are currently uh, self-insured uh, and? You know, what are what are some of them doing? I know that uh, currently self-insured employers also struggle with getting, uh, you know, transparency. For example, the example you used, I, how do you how do you know what, how much each hospital is charging and and how to, um, you know, suggest to an employee that they um, maybe work with a different lower cost provider? How do you think about guiding uh, employers that are currently self-insured uh, to um, really demand more transparency and act on it? Absolutely. You know, there, and there's two items I'd like to focus on, Chris, which is one, um, self-funding, right? That's really just a starting point. Many people think that, oh, I've self-funded, right? And now I've hedged my bet. I can take uh, some of the money off the table and I'm good. I'm getting some data, right? But it's what are you doing with that data? How are you acting on it? How are you using it to improve the profitability of the company? And how are you using it to enhance the member experience? And so really self-funding is about, uh, that's the start of the journey. It's uh, having the level and the ability to be proactive, to engage and to educate. And so, you know, when I think about some of the challenges, and if you look at whether it's Atlanta or Chicago or Dallas or Northern California, every single city, right? If you look at all the physicians and all the health systems there, those physicians all charge different prices within the same PPO network. And so there's a wide swing, a wide swath of pricing differential. And when you're self-funded, you now have the ability to guide and advise on a very um, let's call it a um, uh, uh, soft basis, um, uh, educative, consultative to the member to say, hey, listen, you can always do what you've always done, which is go to the same doctor, right? Who might charge you a $2,500 deductible. And that knee surgery might be $80,000. 
But if you actually call one of the concierges, right, we can actually find that same procedure at a different hospital, maybe a different uh, provider that's got better outcomes too. And that's $20,000. And let's call that going to door B. And the employer thus may choose to waive the deductible for the member. And if the group is not self-funded, right, they never have the ability to do that. But also what happens is, is right, because claims, as I mentioned, drive premium, the direct correlation of the cost of the overall plan, right, the cost of the claim reduces the overall stop loss premium. So now they really have the ability to micromanage the plan as they do any other aspect of their business. Fully insured, they can't do it. And when they're self-funded with an ASO, meaning a traditional carrier-based plan, the carrier, right, it's more of a three-card Monty game. They'll never guide, they'll never advise, and they'll never recommend. They'll say, yes, we have 500 physicians that do knee surgeries in this area, but they're never going to share with you highest quality, lowest cost. Right. And quality is so important that transparency uh, all the way to the member is also critically uh, important. So I think you've got this uh, situation where insurance carriers in a fully insured environment um, have no incentive uh, to reduce costs because they make more money when they allow costs to go up. And likewise, in an ASO, they're not the fiduciary to the plan, really. They don't, uh, so they're, they aren't incentivized to control costs for the employers. So employers have to take a really active uh, role uh, in establishing these programs. I'm going to just circle back uh, to transparency, uh, Jeff. And uh, something that I find very intriguing um, in pharmacy is it's, it's impossible, really, for most uh, uh, buyers to understand. So that's the member, that's the employer to understand what, does, what is the actual cost of the medication that's being uh, purchased in today's environment. And there's a, a movement uh, uh, that's taking place, uh, and we're seeing it uh, gain traction uh, to add more transparency where you can actually determine the real price of the drug. I know it, it sounds like, what, that's a thing? You can't, we, we don't know how much it actually costs. <laughs> so if you could unpack that a little bit, I think that's a, a pretty enlightening and a, and a positive uh, kind of uh, uh, movement that's uh, happening. Yeah, and I think a lot of this has been kind of a side effect of more of these discount cards and a lot of price shopping, if you will, now allowed. Because these are all electronic transactions, everybody knows of their favorite discount card or commercial they've seen where they can go to a website, pop in their medication, it pulls up all the local pharmacies, and you now have a gauge of not just seeing the price, but seeing the price at each individual pharmacy. Now, pharmacy benefit managers have been pressured by this, especially when their prices are completely out of line, to try to figure out a way to bring this same power to the employers. And again, it really has evolved tremendously, both in a regular web-based or even an app where a member on the plan can actually look and price check. And it's hard to that point, but they're getting better at not just saying, what's my copay, but what's the actual cost to my employer between using this pharmacy and this pharmacy and between using this drug and this drug. Is the system perfect? No. Is there more transparency and at least understanding what am I taking and how much does it cost? That part is at least significantly getting better, but it didn't take internal pressure. It was external pressures that made them react to it, but it's definitely at least that part is now improving. Yeah. And I think if you're a, a, a large pharmacy benefit manager, you can't really, it's going to be difficult to change your, your model. But if you're, um, if you're starting from scratch, you might be able to approach it differently because you're starting from uh, zero. 
Um, uh, you you uh, recently uh, with uh, Keith uh, launched a program called Onward Health that that where you're addressing that uh, specific issue uh, head on uh, the, the price transparency, understanding exactly what you're paying for uh, every prescription drug. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? I think that's a uh, kind of interesting and effective. Yeah, and I, and I think Chris, to that point, it takes two. Right, one is what am I buying, or what is the price point? Is it fair? Is it transparent? Is it pass through? Right. So I think the value of understanding true cost transparency on the front end, as far as setting it up fundamentally, is one of the critical steps. But that's not the only step for a successful relationship. The next one is what are our members actually taking? Right. We have transparency and we have data now. But clinically, are our members taking cost-effective medications? And are we putting in strategies that don't just make it the onus of the member, but are actually trying to drive behaviors and make sure that they are being driven to those more cost-effective therapies and putting in programs that manage costs? So it's definitely more of a one-two of starting with, let's get transparency and data and let's make sure we know what we're buying. And then the second one is, is now how do we drive a sustainable value and drive members to more affordable, sustainable medications? It definitely has to be both, both of them in balance. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, and a you know, great segue to um, the second driver that we really wanted to focus on, which is data. And, you know, I think it's imperative uh, for employers to have full access to data at a granular level. Uh, and, and you know what what you've done uh, you know is to provide that uh, level of clarity between you and Keith and that uh, project I just mentioned onward health for mid market employers providing and and that's not something that uh, normally is available to a mid market employer that level of data and at that granular level and I think that you know free flowing data in the right hands will ultimately improve quality of care, care coordination, integration, and ultimately improve care efficiencies with the aim of reducing costs. And uh, in, in an ASO and fully insured environment, so ASO that's like most partially self funded plans, I think, or many would fall into that category. Um, uh, if you aren't demanding your data at a granular level. Um, you know, how does that impact an employer and their employees? And Keith, maybe you could uh, uh, um, unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's kind of like the old adage, right? You can't measure what you can't manage. Uh, or you, you can't, yeah, you can't measure what you, you can't manage what you can't measure. And ultimately, uh, you know, it comes down to really holding, you know, even if you, you decide not to do something this year, to hold the carrier uh, hostage a little bit and make sure that when you do sign that renewal, that you make certain that you do get the data so that the following year you can actually make some appropriate decisions. But ultimately, right, the data allows you to make um, uh, choices at your own pace and for the culture of your company. And so you talked about Onward before, right? It's not a one size fits all. It really allows people to determine where they are on their own self-funded journey, right? Some people are very comfortable in the carrier environment, right? And so they're in the swaddle and others want to begin to kind of walk or crawl or run. And ultimately, you move down the continuum because people manage their 
travel and entertainment budgets, right? And paper clips and paper spend better and more effective than they manage the third costliest item of their company, which is their health insurance costs. And it's not because they don't want to, it's because they don't have the data and the necessary resources to do it. And so this onward plan that we've built and that you're talking about here allows people to take a step back from an executive level and really partner with their employees, both for cost savings and employee culture improvement and ultimately create a better cost-effective plan for their families, you know? And that's what people want, right? It's the most important thing is how do I take care of my people? Yeah, I, I would agree. And it's so important to me to employers where they are because not everybody uh, can make, uh, you know, the amount of change or they're equipped for that level of change management. So it's important to get them, uh, you know, help them, uh, you know, start that journey where they are. I uh, and uh, appreciate that approach. Uh, Jeff, how do you think about data, access to data uh, as it relates to quality of care and reduce costs in your realm? Yeah, I'll make my statement easier. Garbage in, garbage out. So I can't reverse them for you, Keith. So it, it really becomes quality first and then action second, right? So I, I always look at this as is your process a post-mortem study of what happened, what was the trend, and what do I set the rates at next year? And I'm not really doing anything, right? One of the things is obviously getting good data, but then now what are we doing with that data to improve outcomes, drive costs, and do something? So the idea and my challenge for plan sponsors is, is data is good, but what are we going to do to act upon it now and make sure that we're actually putting in additional risk management and additional strategies and actually using the data to your benefit rather than simply reading the data as a trend management report. So again, I think that that's the critical part in pharmacy. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, Jeff hits the nail on the head, right? You know, the data is like a gauge in your car, right? whether you have low gasoline or limited oil to operate, you're not going to wait six months or 10 months to fix those items. You've got to go in right away and a health plan is no different. So when you have data that actually it's not, I'm not, you know, Jeff talks about garbage data, right? That's most of what people get. It's actionable information that you can clearly make some definitive decisions on and you can measure and then remeasure and then do it on an ongoing, scalable, right? Repeatable basis. And the insurance companies, right? Kind of to what I mentioned before, they don't want you to do those things because that impacts their bottom line. Yeah, I think they lack a certain incentive to do it, uh, uh, perhaps. And, and uh, you know, some are, you know, maybe a little uh, more uh, lethargic about it than uh, than others. So, uh, Keith, I, I think you make a, a good point. So, and, and Jeff, it's you know, it's about acting on the data. And when I think about it from the healthcare side, I think okay, um, you, if you have granular data, uh, you think about predicting future, uh, you know, health outcomes for specific members based on the data that you're seeing. It's called predictive analytics, right? What? How do you? How do you uh, think employers can use predictive analytics to intervene before somebody has a bad health uh, event? So uh, I'll answer it and then certainly throw it to Jeff. So, you know, the pharmacy data for us is some of the most important information, right? It's real time. It's readily available. And it tells us immediately who's at high risk and who's at moderate risk, right? It's typically 20% of the population. Then ultimately, out of that 20% of the population, there's a lot of those people, maybe two or 3% of those that have comorbidities. And if you're not catching those in that insight, you know, and as real time in nature as possible, not only are the 
people going down the path of being unhealthy, the cost factors absolutely balloon. And they might not hit this year, but they'll hit next year and the year after. And companies will immediately begin in that year two, year three to see it in their renewal figures. Yeah. So it's about uh, acting on the data again and really finding a way to improve the health for those specific individuals and engaging them in a way that, that, like the example you used earlier, wiping out somebody's deductible if they engage in something that will improve their health. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it's two words, right? It's proactive versus reactive. Yeah. And, but I think uh, most insurance companies aren't really uh, uh, doing that. Um, whereas if uh, employers take control and take charge and demand data, uh, they can find partners who will execute uh, on that strategy for them. Is that fair to say? Without question. It's it's about looking at the whole workforce, right? And what are you doing to them, right? And it doesn't just come down to employee benefits. It's about culture, but it, certainly it begins with the employee benefit plan, which is one of the number one reasons why people work at, a, at an employer. They want something that is uh, both lower cost, but they want something that works and they want something that's going to keep themselves and their family healthy and happy. And so, um, you know, if you look at the past 18 months and COVID and what it really did to businesses, all that change and transformation would have typically taken 10 years. People are ready for this, right? CEOs are digging in, CFOs are digging in and HR who is terrific and they're, you have to play in the sandbox with them as well. And they're absolutely critical. It's not about just checking the box and making sure everybody's happy and the phone doesn't ring. It's really about managing the health plan, the way the companies manage the rest of their business units. Yeah, and we're finding a lot of uh, leaders, HR leaders, uh, CFOs, CEOs who once they understand how much savings is available to them by taking control, demanding transparency, demanding uh, data and taking action, and they realize how they can invest uh, those funds into their back into their people and their business. That's a really powerful motivator uh, uh, to, um, uh, I think, motivate them to take uh, action they might not have uh, previously. Jeff, I'd love to know, uh, you know, when when you look at data, you know, if you could give us some a couple of specific examples of how you're using data to make a very meaningful impact on an employer's pharmacy spend. When we think about that's the that's the highest, uh, or I should say um, the biggest rate of increase in healthcare costs today is pharmacy spend. So whatever you're doing there has a tremendous impact. Are there a couple of examples you can give us uh, that relate to uh, employers being able to control costs using the data? Yeah, and again, part of it is obviously giving them options to then act upon. So I would say probably the two biggest levers, if you will, where we've really seen some great results through action is really around specialty medications and drug waste. Specialty medications are by far, I hope, one of the biggest plan sponsor worries, right? Less than 2% of your members, greater than 50% of your spend. And so it kind of starts with, you even have the appropriate utilization looking at what's happening in the data and is your pharmacy benefit manager truly managing your risk, right? So part of it is the diagnostic of unpacking what's happening and giving them the hard news of are they truly managing risk or are they just managing rebates and maybe have this reverse incentive where as your costs go up, they're making more money. So again, after that, then it's thinking about cost management, right? What else can we do with these high cost utilizers to figure out specific strategies and challenge employers? It's 50% of what you're spending your pharmacy dollar on. Do you have a specific specialty drug strategy that you can deploy? 
and you must deploy it. Drum waste is a little bit stickier, if you will, because it's actually looking for some of these inappropriate therapies. And sometimes it's a complete conflict of interest now with between us and the pharmacy benefit manager, because we're educating employers, you've got some garbage happening in your data where you're spending a lot of money on drugs you shouldn't, but your pharmacy benefit manager is actually collecting a rebate and wants you to continue down that spend. So some of it is a wedge we can act upon, but sometimes it leads to an even bigger action. It convinces them, I have now a broken model, a poor partner, this is where change management starts to happen. So part of it is diagnostic and understanding and then empowering them and giving them those action points that can deliver the savings. Well, that's great. I think it's so important to capture the rebates uh, on behalf of the employer, you know, as you mentioned, so that removes one of the kind of perverse incentives that the employer is getting the rebates and then the pharmacy benefit manager, the insurance company isn't uh, incentivized in that way anymore. And, you know, what you said all sounds very complicated. <laughs> and I think that, uh, and it is, uh, but I think the beauty of how you've approached it for kind of smaller mid-market employers is creating these turnkey solutions where they do capture, uh, you know, the rebates where, where you're, you're providing fully transparent pricing uh, and designing the program to design these uh, incentives, so these perverse incentives out and make sure you're focused on quality uh, and price uh, reduction. So I, I think that, you know, it sounds very complicated and it is, of course, uh, but I, I, I do appreciate the way you're approaching uh, this for smaller employers who don't have the resources. Yeah. And I think, you know, Chris, you know, you, you talk about, you know, the, the savings that, that Jeff and, and I are, are attributing to what we're typically seeing, you know, and if you put, you know, real pen to paper, it's about $200,000 for every 100 employees or a million dollars in savings for a group of 500. That's a lot of money, right? That's meaningful. A, you can reinvest in your company, right? Your people. People, your valuation, right? You can do a lot of things with your business, uh, you know, that you, that you can't do with this runaway, uncontrollable expense right now. Yeah, and I think similar to what Jeff has done on the pharmacy side, you've done, a more, you know, holistically on the healthcare side, which is to uh, provide all of these really complex and sophisticated strategies to reduce costs and improve health outcomes, but make it easy for employers. To adopt, so I love that, particularly for smaller, uh, you know, uh, mid-market uh, employers who just don't, again don't have the resources to pull all of these strategies together on their own. Um, I, I would like to turn our attention to appropriateness of care. I think this is really critical, and uh, and and transparency and data, you know, certainly lead up uh, to discussion on appropriateness of care um, because without transparency and data it's really hard i think to drive appropriate care um, the u.s the u.s healthcare system uh, spend will exceed four trillion dollars in 2021 and in a national uh, survey of physicians uh, these physicians estimated that 21 percent of medical care is unnecessary um, a, a healthcare economist at Harvard, David Cutler, uh, he estimates that 28% of the healthcare spend is unnecessary. So that's pretty uh, shocking uh, to me. We already talked about, you know, the, the tenfold, you know, price difference and, and you know, from uh, facilities like hospitals um, uh, that was, you know, that study was published at the U.S. National, uh, in, uh, US National Health Institute. And there's no uh, correlation to quality uh, with the with the pricing differential. 
So I'd love to get your take on that, Keith, if you could just discuss a bit about appropriateness of care, what's happening today, and and what are some ways uh, that employers can be thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it like this, right, the healthcare system is incentivized to actually prescribe more care, right? That's how people make money. Surgeons make money when they cut you open, right? And that's the first thing you do when you go to a doctor, you hurt your knee, your back, right? Let's do some surgery. When you have the ability to pause and take a step back and all you use a a manufacturing company with about 450 employees, they actually uh, recommended to their employees, you've got to call the advocates before you're going for these procedures, because maybe the surgery, right, is not necessary. Maybe you need a second opinion. And maybe the cost factor that you're initially being quoted is unruly or slash unnecessary. And we saw a major uptick in our population when a CEO actually wrote a letter to his employees of that particular group, 25 5% of the group's members called within the first six months who had uh, procedures that were actually uh, scheduled to be done. And we were able to avoid about 12 or 15% of those. That's a ma- massive savings as well as massive opportunity to give the right care at the right time. Yeah, that's that's a great outcome. 25% is a really high engagement uh, figure and I'm sure is extremely beneficial to both the quality uh, outcomes, uh, the health outcomes for these individuals, as well as the cost. You, you, I assume- And it was really, you- Chris, it was driven really two reasons, right? It's because the CEO, the C-suite was actively engaged and they actually took the time to write the letter to re-educate, right? It wasn't a one and done. You can't roll out a health plan and expect people to uh, know how to use it all year long. You've got to it's a continuous basis. And, and they really spent the time and they had us doing this with our team, educating the member population. That's the most important. It's education, education, education. When you think about you know financial well-being for employees at the top of everyone's mind and understanding how financially stressed employees are and how that's impacting uh, you know, not only just uh, you know, their lives in general, but their productivity and engagement at work. Anything we can do uh, to help improve their financial situation, uh, I'm sure is uh, welcomed by most uh, employers. Jeff, and I think that really relates to some of the good work that you're doing uh, in pharma as well, uh, and and how you're connecting the dots um, of uh, you know around appropriateness of care, but also tying it to financial outcomes for both employer and employees. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about that? Yeah, I I think our biggest worry is still specialty medications. And so as we think about appropriateness, I think about is that next high cost specialty medication truly appropriate? And then if you take a step back and and look at that, again, you had showed 28%. If you look at the approval of these high cost specialty medications by the largest PBMs, it's it's floating in that 90% range. And again, everybody would make the assumption, obviously the physician's right, obviously 90% of the time. If you look at the guidelines and those that are truly following the strict guidelines, the number's typically under 70%. And so you have this greater than 20% delta. Does that mean they're saying no and jeopardizing patient care? Absolutely not. It's that we actually are putting in the appropriate protocols and everybody thinks I'm a bad guy by saying specialty drugs are overutilized. But I think the one thing we're forgetting is it's not just about cost, it's about patient safety. I love those commercials on TV where you have all those happy people that are taking the specialty medication and then at the end of the commercial, 
says very quickly, may cause cancer, may cause death. These are expensive medications, but they're also dangerous medications. And I think that's one of the tricky points when we think about appropriateness of care is it's not just about cost management. It's the safety and the patient care. If we just jump to these extremely dangerous medications too early in the process when it's not appropriate, we're actually putting our employee members in danger. So again, I think it it comes with a twofold message. It must be appropriate, but it's also about safety. It's not just about denying care. Yeah, I, gosh, I love the way uh, you address that. And, and that's uh, so often overlooked. And when, when you think about the fact that we pay three and a half times more than 32 other OECD nations for brand name drugs, and they say, well, it's for research and development, but you look at the top 100 drug makers and they're spending We've got 64 of those top 100 spend uh, twice as much on sales and marketing as they do R&D and 27 spend 10 times more. Uh, you know, that direct to consumer advertising, I think that's another big part of the problem, but we won't go there today. So let's talk about a call to action. You know, what, what, you know when, when you think about how employers, what employers can do based on our discussion today, what are your key takeaways and what would you advise employers to do to take back control and break this uh, uh, cycle uh, today? Yeah, I, I'd say you know, the, the real impact of the healthcare crisis is that employees are taking home less pay, right? Wage stagnation, inflation, right? All of those things are impacting. And the, the solution that we're seeing with most companies that are not taking the strategy that we've kind of talked about today is, you know, raising deductibles, raising co-pays. That doesn't reduce costs. That doesn't improve quality. All it does is make everybody in the in the system suffer, right? And so I think Warren Buffett really said it best, right? You know, healthcare is the tapeworm of the economic engine of America. He and Jeff Bezos and Jamie Dimon, they couldn't make it work, but it is working. If you look at the opportunities and the real opportunity is for the executives of the companies, the C-suites to actually get involved, roll up their sleeves and actually learn, right? Learn that there are other approaches, learn that there are strategies and learn that there are advising teams that are willing to actually hold your hand and, and take you along the way at the pace that you're actually ready for. And so, right, my number one takeaway is just get involved. Yeah, boy, educating uh, educating employers. So being open to really understanding the problem so that you're open to uh, the solutions that will help you take control. And uh, there are, as you mentioned, there are advisors that make this a lot easier for employers uh, to adopt and take uh, control and demand that transparency. And Jeff, uh, what would you say, um, uh, how would you uh, recommend employers uh, that they take action today? Yeah, I think it's it's part of that be bold strategy. It was kind of funny because for years, the very last slide in every presentation I did gave the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing, expecting different results, right? Let's hit the nail on the head, guys. If we don't change something, we're not going to expect anything to change on all of the financials, the trends, and all the other downstream. So I think addressing it head on with status quo, I think recognizing change is hard, right? Unbundling, looking at all the different pieces and components, drilling into the data, it's hard, right? This is not as easy 
as it is to just set it and forget it. So I think recognizing that it's a little bit more difficult and then being willing to face that challenge. And again, dig in and be interested in, in matching all of this newfound power and data and truly acting upon it. This call to action, I think, is going to be the big part of it is, is recognizing it's easy to do nothing. It's harder to do something about it, but I think the results will pay for themselves. So it's really a rewarding mechanism to kind of go down that pathway. Well, I couldn't agree more. And uh, thank you both Keith and Jeff uh, for joining me uh, today. I really appreciate your insights uh, and love your passion on this uh, subject and what you're doing to help employers, both employers and employees uh, to benefit from the good work uh, that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks.